more importantly, it changed the arc for me as an entrepreneur, as a professional. The truth is I was intimidated. This Kimmons Wilson, he's a billionaire, and I'm a 24-year-old schlep, barely making ends meet, selling fleets of cars. Hey, everybody. I'm Sam Coates, and this is the Driven By Podcast. Life's a lot more fun when you're all in and passionate about what you're building. Here, you'll hear me with entrepreneurs, operators, executives, and public servants from all over the country. They'll discuss their commitment to their craft, defining moments, what's made them successful, where things are headed in their space, plus so much more. This podcast is produced by the team at DrivenbySamCoats.com. And for more information and episodes, go to DrivenbySamCoats.com backslash podcast. Before we get to today's episode, here's a quick word from our sponsor for today's podcast. AB Jets is a great story. It started very small with an entrepreneur and a dream, and it's now one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. So bypass the hassle and fly private. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS. Hey, everybody. Happy New Year. This is the first one for 2024 and looking forward to a great year of great interviews. My guest this week is Bill Courtney. Bill is the CEO and founder of Classic American Hardwoods. It's an $80 million a year global lumber company based out of Memphis, Tennessee. Bill started this company out of his living room in 2001. Bill is also the host of the Army of Normal Folks podcast. He's a former high school football coach. He's been featured in the award-winning documentary, Undefeated, plus much more. This interview is unique. Bill goes into his tough upbringing, selling cars, learning from legendary entrepreneurs, risk, his faith, and everything entrepreneurship, plus so much more. And also, go check out his podcast, An Army of Normal Folks. Please enjoy this week's episode with Bill Courtney. Bill, great to see you. Good to see you too. Down here at the World Headquarters. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, the World Headquarters in Memphis, in North Memphis, that's right, all 50 acres of it. About two years ago, you told me a story when you were selling trucks and cars, that you had a certain entrepreneur come in and, and buy a car from you. Yeah. I didn't hear that on the podcast. I listened. Could you tell that? Sure. I sold fleets of vehicles to, mer to commercial accounts. So I sold trucks to companies with delivery trucks, and I sold Tauruses to guys who would buy four or five or six or seven Tauruses and roll them over every two years for their sales staff. So, you know, I did that. And um, one day, uh, the, the Glenn Crutchfield, who was the general manager and part owner of Dobbs Ford, where the fleet department was based out of for the, for the Dobbs organization, called me and said, hey, this isn't a commercial deal, but doesn't, doesn't matter. I want you to handle it. I said, yes, sir. Happy to do it. And uh, he said, I'll call you when the guy gets here. And he called me not an hour later and I walked down and here's this gentleman. I'd say he's probably 5'9", gray hair, well-dressed and dapper, but not really distinguished. Not someone you'd say, oh, wow. And uh, he hands me his card. And his card is a $100 million bill with his face in the middle of it that says Kimmons Wilson. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I know who Kimmons Wilson is, the founder of Holiday Inns. And so I, uh, he's there to buy a Crown Victoria. I mean, Kimmons Wilson, a billionaire, screwing around with, you know, this young kid trying to figure out how to make a little money. <laughs> he wanted to buy a Crown Victoria, for his, I think is like his housekeeper or something. So anyway, I took him out, showed him all the Crown Victorias, and he asked me what color I think she would like. And I'm like, Mr. Wilson, I have no idea what color your housekeeper would like. But I personally think the, uh, the back then, everybody liked the hunter green with tan interior stuff. And I said, but I personally think this 
Hunter Greenwood tan interior is nice, and it's got all the power windows and locks and everything, and uh, there it is. And he said, super. And he said, I, I think I want that one. I said, would you like to drive it? And he said, why, is there something wrong with it? And I said, no, sir, <laughs> nothing wrong with it. And he said, then what do I need to drive it for? And I said, just want it off your opportunity to test drive it. And he said, I'm not going to be driving it. And if there's nothing wrong with it, I don't see any point in wasting our time. I said, no, sir. So we went and sat down at my desk. And um, because he was a friend of the Dobbs family, they marked the price at $100 over invoice. No negotiating, just here, go take Mr. Wilson this price. So I did, and he got the price and looked at me, and he said, uh, yeah, I don't think we can do that. And I said, Mr. Wilson, uh, listen, I'm just basically here to push paperwork. <laughs> this is the price the Dobbs themselves have given you. And he said, yeah. He said, you ever seen the houses they live in? And I said, no, sir. He said, they're making plenty of money on this car. <laughs> and I'm like, Mr. Wilson, maybe, but uh, this is what the price. He said, yeah. He said, I'll think about it. And he left. And I thought, okay, well, I'm getting fired now because Glenn Crutchville is going to want to know why I let Kimmins Wilson walk out of this dealership. Anyway, he left, and uh, he came back the next day. And this time he came back with a buddy. I think they'd been eating lunch or something at the country club or whatever they were doing, sat down. He walked straight in, didn't go to Mr. Crutchfield's office, came in, found me, and he sat down. He said, yeah, I really need to buy a Crown Vic for my housekeeper. I said, yes, I'm well aware you need to buy a Crown Vic for your housekeeper. And he showed me the uh, the number he'd pay, which was about $3,000 less. That's a $21,000 car. So another 15% under the already discounted to $100 over. And uh, he said, what do you think about that price? I said, I think it's a great price, Mr. Wilson. Well, I can't sell it for that. I mean, it's $100. And uh, he said, you know, I think I do want to drive it. And I said, okay. So he and his buddy and I got the car. And that man drove from Dobbs Ford all the way to Midtown and back in that car. Must put 25 miles on it. And he drove slow. And I mean, he, he two, three hours of my day, got back and he said, all right. And he wrote a number down and it was $2,000 under the best price I offered him. And he said, let's get this deal done today here. And I said, Mr. Wilson, I cannot tell you enough that I'm just pushing paperwork here. This is not my price. This came from the Dobbs and this is literally $100 over what they paid for it. And he said, uh, all right, well, I'll think about it. And he left. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now I've got five hours. Oh, by the way, and when you sell something for $100 over the cost, there's a thing called holdback on cars, which is typically 1% or 2% of the car. And I think on a Crown Vic, it's about $400 holdback. So the dealership is going to make $400 plus $100 over priceless, a total of about $500 selling the stupid car, which is not enough money to run. I mean, you got to sell cars for more than $500 profit. You know, if you think a dealership's got 400 cars on the lot, if they sold all of them for a total of $500 profit, that's $20,000. If they turn their inventory three times a year, that's $60,000 a year in income. That is not going to keep a car dealership open. And salesmen in the car business are paid straight commission. And on anything that's that low, my commission on the thing is like 75 bucks. I mean, so I've already spent two days and five hours screwing with Mr. Wilson <laughs> that even if he did buy it, I might, after taxes, have enough to take my family to Charlie's <laughs> where they feed kids for free. So, I mean, I'm kind of over it at this point. And the next day he comes back, this time with no friend by himself. And he sits down and he drops the price to $1,000. Let's see, we offered any circle price. He pushed across the table and said, That's what we'll pay for that car. And I said, Mr. Wilson, no, it's not. And I said, I know who you are. I know that you built Holiday Inns. And I have so much respect for all of the success you've had in life and everything else. But I got to tell you something I got four small children at home. I've got a wife. I don't make much money. And I'm on hour six on this. <laughs> and Mr. Wilson, I'm telling you, even if you will buy this car at the price that you're going to buy it for, I'm going to make little to nothing on it. I'm doing this because I was asked to by the management. 
and the management is doing this because they're a friend of yours and trying to give you the best price. I'm telling you right now, I can't do any more, but I will do this. I will knock $25 off the price. I'll take it from 100 over invoice, 75 over invoice. You can say the win. Would you please just buy the car now? And he said, what'd you say? And I said, would you please buy the car now? He said, three days, and it took three days to get you to ask me for the business. That's why I've been sitting here waiting on in the first place. Write the damn car, boy. <laughs> and he was teaching me a lesson. He took me, he wasted all, his, well, I think he had a blast. But we spent three days to get me to actually ask him for the business. And he didn't want the money. He wanted to see if I was going to ask him for the business. And in asking for the business, we wrote it up. One of the greatest sales lessons I've ever been given by one of the masters of business from right here in Memphis. Did that change the arc for you as a salesperson? Yes, but more importantly, it changed the arc for me as an entrepreneur, as a professional, as anything. The truth is I was intimidated. This Kimmons Wilson, he's a billionaire, and I'm a 24-year-old schlep, barely making ends meet, selling fleets of cars, and I'm sitting across from this guy being told by the general manager and part owner of Dobbs Ford as a representation of the Dobbs family, who is another family in Memphis that's insane, to take care of the man. I wasn't thinking about selling him. I was thinking about being accommodating. And the lesson I learned is the customer's not always right, despite popular notion, but the customer's always a customer. Meaning the customer's always got what you got, what you want, which is a sale, which is the money. And you do need to be polite and you do need to be professional, but you don't need to be accommodating necessarily. You're a man too. You're a professional too. You also have something they want, which is the product or service you're selling. And when you get to a place that you know your customer's getting a fair deal, there's nothing wrong with looking them in the eyes and saying, the features, advantages, and benefits of what I'm offering you today are fair, and my time is as valuable as yours, and we can do business at this or we can't, so we're going to part with a contract or as friends, but I'm through messing with you. Would you like to do business today or not? And there's nothing wrong with that, but when you're accommodating or you're intimidated and you don't have the temerity to look a customer in the eyes and have that conversation you're probably going to waste a lot of time and not get the sale anyway. And that's where you learned it. That, that is exactly where I learned it. AB Jets is a great story. It started very small with an entrepreneur and a dream. And it's now one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. So bypass the hassle and fly private. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS. How would you describe this city, maybe like other cities, coming in, think your parents divorced when you were four, your mom had five marriages, you're broke, you were selling cars here, but now you're, you're known here in Memphis. Yeah, fat redheaded guy. It's hard hard to miss me. <laughs> and even people- I mean, in fact, you said I was a fat redheaded guy. You know, jumping up and down aisles at the Grizzly at the FedEx Forum. Hard not to hard not to miss that guy. <laughs> but when you think about people in the affluent community, people that are benefiting from generational wealth, and they're they're great people that do that. And then there are people that ride off the coattails of the generations prior to them. And then you think about outsiders like yourself that worked their ass off, and now you're in a position where people know you and people like to say they know you. What's it like for you as you've seen that evolution throughout your life, and is there anything to that we're talking about? Okay, that's a multifaceted question, so let me address one. There is a lot of generational wealth in this city, and I think of a guy like Duncan Williams. I have an enormous amount of respect for a guy like Duncan Williams. Duncan's father left him with a investment company business. Duncan's father died when Duncan was really pretty young and had just basically gotten out of college. 
And Duncan was thrown into the fire, and he took what he was left and I think quadrupled the size of that business, grew it exponentially at any rate. And in doing so, built a business that hired more people, paid them well, and grew their incomes. You can't look at at people who were fortunate enough to have a, a leg up that took that leg up and exponentially grew it and say, oh, well, that was just family money. No, that's that's not true. You know, I mean, people who, who are born into generational wealth but take that opportunity and grow it, they don't just grow it for themselves. The city, how many, you know, uh, Live at the Garden, sponsored by Duncan Williams. The Orpheum, sponsored by Duncan Williams. I remember five, six years ago, the Mississippi River had some boats that looked like ducks going up and down the river. And I looked over there and it had the Duncan Williams. I'm like, I actually called Duncan. I said, Duncan, why are you sponsoring ducks? I don't know. They asked. I mean, you know, what a guy like Duncan's done, yeah, he had a leg up to start off, but he didn't sit on it. He didn't squander it. He He took it, multiplied it, and in doing so, the city is better for it because of all of the things his company has sponsored and all the philanthropy it's given to the city and all of the people that have gone on to work for his larger company and made great livelihoods and livings in it. I mean, to to look at people and say, oh, they got generational wealth and, you know, they're in the lucky club and blah, 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 and, and actually discredit what the next generation has done is is short-sighted. And it's, f- frankly, reeks of jealousy. The Wilsons are a great example. Uh, look across the street from Christian Brothers High School, and if you look up in there, you will see the Spence and Becky Wilson maternity ward. That We wouldn't have that high-end maternity ward in the city if it wasn't for the generosity of the Wilsons. And the Wilsons didn't just take the money from Kimmons, Wilson, and the holiday ends and sit on it and spend it all. They've exponentially grown that business. And now you have all of their investments all over Florida. And you've got Wilson Air at the airport, which is probably the, one of the nation's finest FBOs across the country. And then you got Kim Wilson, another Wilson brother, who is go- going around literally trying to find amazing places to, to give money away. And now you have the second generation coming up, Spinch Jr. getting involved, and they, they're in the barbecue business and, and the beer business and, and all over the world in the real estate business. And, I mean, why would we poo-poo people that have generational wealth when they continue to grow it, they continue to create jobs, they continue to invest back in our community? And I can go down the list of these generational wealth people. So in answer to the first part of your question, I really can't think of anybody in our city that has had large family generational wealth that hasn't taken what they were blessed to have, but grown it, created jobs, good jobs in our city with it, and then also been unbelievable philanthropic, uh, making our community a better place. So good for them, and I'm I'm proud for them. And I mean, Fred Smith just gave $50 million dollars so that the Liberty Bowl could get the money it wanted. And if people don't really understand what's going on there, there's a pot of money for both the FedEx form and the Liberty Bowl, a, a big pot of money coming from the state. It is not enough money to do everything for the FedEx form and the Liberty Bowl. So everybody's like, how do we divide it up? Well, the problem is if you divide it up too tight and you don't do everything the FedEx form that the FedEx form needs, we'll lose the Grizzlies. Seattle wants a team. Vegas wants a team. The NBA does not want the Grizzlies to leave Memphis, but they only have so much they can say about it. And the ownership of the Grizzlies are not Memphians, by and large. There's minority owners that are Memphians, but the decision-making is not Memphians. And if we don't invest what we've got to invest in the FedEx form, we'll lose the Grizzlies. So that money has to go to the FedEx form. But in doing that, now we've got a problem with the Liberty Bowl. And it is way behind the times. And so who steps up? Fred Smith, $50 million. Why would we gripe about that generational wealth? Because Richard, Fred's son, was a huge part of making that happen. I can, I can tell stories like this for the rest of the podcast, but 
those families need to be appreciated and celebrated for the jobs they make and the philanthropy that, that they do and, and, and the important role they play in this community to make it better. So what you're saying, these families are an example of you could take it through communities across the country and how to steward what you have, take risks, invest it back in, and really take places and communities and cities to another level. Yeah, and, and specifically with a place like Memphis, they also could have pulled up stakes and gone anywhere they wanted to. They could be in New York. They could be in L.A. They could be in Miami. They could be in Chicago. They could be in Dallas. They could be in Nashville. But they've chose to stay here and build their business here and grow jobs here and do their philanthropic work here. They should be celebrated and revered and honored and appreciated because so many of our lives are enriched by both their business acumen and their generosity. And we need to be mindful of that when we think about FedEx and we think about AutoZone and we think about the Wilson family companies and we think about uh, other companies like that. We're very fortunate to have them and they enrich all of our lives. With regard to me and the being known part of the question and all of that, I mean, I'm, I, I really am humbled every time Lisa and I are out at dinner or we're at the Grizzlies game or whatever and five or 10 people come up and say hello and you know, I love your movie. I love your book. I saw you speak, and it was so inspirational. The podcast is phenomenal, and I, I listened to it, and I can't believe it. And I saw you on the Kelly Clarkson show, or I saw you on this. I mean, all of that it is humbling, and I appreciate it. But I, I'm, I, this is not some all shucks, false Southern humility. I can take it or leave it. I have a wife that I cherish. I have four children that are my legacy. I have 130 employees, the vast majority of which have worked with me for 15 or 20 years. And I have a business that I've poured myself into. And those are the things that are important to me. And the only recognition I seek is appreciation and respect and love from my four children and my wife and uh, recognition for my employees that I've tried to create every year a better place for them to make their livings and that I have not been selfish. If, if that's what I'm known for, then I'll take that. And that's really what drives me. The rest of it, the public persona and all of it, it is humbling and it is exciting and it is fun. And I would be disingenuous to act as if, you know, all of that stuff on occasion doesn't put a little pat on a fat guy's ego, because it does. But in all honesty, if uh, all of that went away tomorrow, but on balance, I had the love, admiration, support, and respect from my wife and four children, and I, and I had an understanding for the people that work with and for and around me every day that I've, I've tried to be generous and I've tried to be fair and I've tried to create a better place for them to go to work every year. That's really what makes me tick. What do you think was the single biggest driver to where you tied your identity to things that couldn't leave you versus the other things that seemed like they could in most cases? Man, when, when you grow up with people in and out of your life, I want to be clear. I, I had a paternal and a maternal set of grandparents that were both married for over 50 years, and they did the to death do us part thing. So I did have a model of what a, a healthy, long-lasting marriage relationship looked like. But... As a strapping kid and a teenager, everything's what you see in front of you. And so, although I did have that, and I had a mother who loved me very much and tried really, really hard, despite some mistakes in relationships, she she genuinely loved and still loves me and, and, and all of that. But having said all of those things with that preface in mind, I had a lot of people in and out of my life, and I was always searching for that that relationship where a father or a father figure would look at me in the eyes and say, I'm proud of you, you know, who I could go to with with 15 and 16-year-old questions that 15 and 16-year-old strapping boys have. I never had that. And so um, I guess what I'm trying to illustrate is, is that you know, the things that matter to me as a result of the way I came up and the way I think are probably different than most because they don't have my reality and my experience. 
So the things that matter to me are respect, appreciation, dignity, forgiveness, grace, commitment, and uh, folks who are willing to dig their heels in, invest. I listened on another interview that you took, the prior lumber company that you were head of sales, started as a salesman before. I heard that you took it from $25 million to 125, is that right? 110. Yeah, well, I mean, I, let's be careful with that. I was hired as a salesman. A year and a half later, was the national sales manager. Three years later, was the vice president of sales and left it after five and a half years. And our sales went from 25 million to my last year, 110 million. And I had a large role in that, being the vice president of sales, hiring the sales staff, training the sales staff traveling with the sales staff, facilitating those sales, facilitating a lot of the purchases on those sales, raising the margins of those sales, all of that for sure. Now, I mean, there were many other people involved in that growth. It wasn't me being the Lone Ranger and Superman inside somebody else's company. But yes, in the fact is, in those five years, we grew our sales from $25 million to $110 million, and I was the vice president of sales at the time. And I need to clear that up. I meant a team, but yeah. I just meant you led that team. Yeah, that's right. And then today, I don't know exactly, you can share if you want, but online at least says you're doing more than $50 million a year. We did $81 million last year. Okay, so you know how to grow. You know how to scale. That's my point and my question. What can you understand and wrap your head around when you're coming in and seeing opportunity and you focus on more than anything else to put up that kind of growth once with somebody else in a team, and then once building a team and starting from scratch? <laughs> There's a lot to answer there. One is you got to have partnership in the house first. I, I don't know of any substantial growth that comes without risk. That risk is leverage. That risk is bank debt. That risk is changing interest rates. That risk is having to sell product on account so that if if you've got a customer that goes broke, you got a big loss. That risk is inventory loss, inventory change in price. You can get over inventoried and and the market drop out of your inventory and all of a sudden you got losses all over your balance sheet. Then you've got insurance loss, you got fire, you've got flood, you've got tornadoes. You, I mean you got risk everywhere. Changes in tax law, the changes in the way gap works for depreciation, changes in insurance regulation, changes in government regulations about how you get product, dispose of product, and it doesn't matter what business you're in. And now that we're in a world economy, there's enormous amount of risk and freight. I have a friend who's in business now who five, four years ago was importing product from uh, Ho Chi Minh City, and his average cost of a container freight was $2,100. And two years ago, that spiked to $28,000. Well, he'd already had the product sold. And all of a sudden, his rates went up $25,000 a container over the cost of 50 containers. Think about that. And he had to eat it all. There's risk everywhere. And what I'm saying is you better have a partner that, that understands risk and is willing to engage in that risk with you. In other words, Lisa knows what the score is. Lisa knows what the balance is. And Lisa understands that while if you're success in an initiative or an enterprise, that you're going to reap the rewards of it. But if you're not successful, you might lose everything you got. And if you don't have a partner in your life that's willing to, to bear that risk with you, don't even start. Because you will never, ever be able to be successful when you're fighting it at home. And uh, fortunately, when I married Lisa, I was flat broke. And so she said, you know, we're broke when we met. We can be broke again. <laughs> so I had the right partner in that regard. Um, but you need that support. Um, and so many more ways than one. And, you know, oftentimes, like me, I had to sign personal guarantees for all of the data I took on, which means you don't only lose your business. They come and get your cars. They come and get your furniture. They come and get your house. And you are literally broke, homeless, nothing. That's a lot of risk. 
It's another reason why when people say, oh, that rich guy and that business and everything else, you know, you need to be careful with that. People that do well get handsomely rewarded, and I get that. And and there is a, a large gap between the low, low class in our culture and the high, high class in our culture. And I do believe that gap needs to be narrowed. I think we got to raise the most disadvantaged among us. And, you know, at some point, how much is enough? And the fact that we have multi-billion dollar corporations paying almost no tax, in my opinion, is dead wrong. It's just wrong. And I'm a fiscal conservative, but I'm saying it's wrong. Anybody who doesn't say it's wrong is just being an idiot. It's wrong. But uh, in the same respect, although there is stuff we could work on to regrow and reconstitute our middle class, which I think is a big, big part of why we have so many societal ills and crime and all of the things that are going on. If we regrow the middle class, a lot of the problems that plague us now go away. So I think there's a lot that could be done in tax law, and there's a lot could be done in our society to narrow that gap and regrow and reconstitute our middle class that would solve a lot of things. Well, I do believe that. I also believe in exceptionalism, and I believe if you're willing to take that risk and hammer it, then you deserve those rewards because the people working for you, they're not signing the bank note. If, the, if your company goes broke, the people working for you, the, it'll suck, but they're not going to have a bank come and take their house and their cars and their furniture. They're just going to have to go get another job. The guy at the top, he can lose all that. So you need to have a partner that understands it. You also need to communicate that to your team. They need to understand what's online for you so that they understand the importance of their jobs. The second thing I would say is you have to align yourself with um, – with a really good financier. And whether that's a, a silent partner, whether that's private equity, whether that's uh, asset-based lending at a bank, whether that's a commercial bank, whatever. Because the worst thing that happens to any company, especially in its first three or four years, is just run out of capital. You can be profitable. You can show profits in a profit and loss statement and still be running out of cash. And you got to make sure you always, you want to build a balance sheet that is a fortress against the bad times. And that fortress is cash or the access to cash. So one, have a partner understands the risks. Two, communicate those risks to everybody around you. Three, make sure you have proper capital. And then four, and maybe the most important is understand that it doesn't matter if they're the people operating a forklift or taking out the garbage all the way up to uh, your senior level management. Those are grown adults. And if they're in your organization, they should have brains. If they don't have brains, you've done a poor job hiring. So since you've got grownups with brains who know how to exercise discernment and understand concepts, I have always taken the, uh, the approach that treat them that way. Don't breathe down their neck. Don't micromanage. Do a really good job of teaching, educating, and training, and then allow grown adults with brains and discernment who understand everything that's online on a daily basis in your business, allow them to do their job and reward them according to their successes. Profits are a necessary measure of any organization's success. And likewise, a paycheck is a necessary measure of any employee's engagement. But shortly behind pay, there are a whole list of things that matter to people that go to work every day that don't own companies and are employees. And that is being treated with respect. That is being treated like they're part of the organization. That is being allowed to take ownership and their duties and responsibilities. That is being treated like they're the answer and not the problem. And I've always thought when you treat human beings that way, they'll give you a little bit more. That does not mean it's happy, happy, kumbaya, hold hands on a circle around a Christmas tree all the time. When people screw up, you got to hold them accountable. But even in holding an employee accountable, you don't have to be degrading. You have to remember you're looking at an adult who goes home and likely has kids that looks up to them and thinks they're the king of the world. And 
demasculating or eviscerating uh, employees, I just don't think is uh, a, a long-term solution to building the right team. And uh, the counter to that is uh, empower the people around you with all the information you can give them, hold them accountable, and treat them with respect. And if you do that, you got a fighting chance. I've been with a fair amount of folks, and it's rare when you come across entrepreneurs and even corporate people that fast corporate life where they have a tight marriage. It just seems that the years, stress, success, kids, things can sometimes create separation and, you know, create divorce or people just being emotionally not as connected as they once were. Is there one thing that's kept you so close with your spouse to where when I ask you that question about success, growth, entrepreneurship, you go back to your partner. What have y'all done that's been most important to you in this business, but all of life? Kept Christ as the center of our marriage. That's it. There's no long-winded answer. So simple. When you're Christians, you get married in church. Those vows you take, if you boil it down to one thing, it's uh, serve one another. I don't know a bigger servant on the face of the planet than Christ. And if you put service in Christ in the center of your marriage, it's not that you're not going to have problems because Lord knows you are. But you you have the foundation to weather those problems uh, if you can always fall back to a common belief that we are to serve one another and love one another as Christ loves us. And if uh, that stays paramount in your relationship, you have the foundation to weather almost any storm. And I got to tell you, my wife, Lisa, has been the driver of that. She taught me that, and she's right. That's awesome. When you think about risk, I thought about it earlier this morning. You got an office in Vietnam. You got an office in China. You look on your property, properties out here. You got a tremendous amount of inventory. You just referenced freight and pricing. How do you recognize in your own in your own head what's a major problem and then what's a warning flash that you're driving through <laughs> as an entrepreneur. Oh my gosh. I don't know when you drove up, if you saw the 75 flagpoles out there flying, that, those are all warning flags. <laughs> Waking up in the morning and showing up is a risk. You know, it, 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 there's warning flags everywhere. <laughs> Have you ever had something happen? And the minute it happened and it was a, a problem, you thought to yourself, Man, I knew I shouldn't do that. You ever had that experience? Yes. So my degree is in psychology, and I had a developmental psychologist, Dr. Kim McGraw, who actually wrote the 780-page developmental psychology textbook that we used. And one day we were in a class discussion that went down a thousand different roads that weren't in his notes, but he would do that with us on occasion. And one time he said, the best way to avoid big disasters is to not let your ego override your brain. And he said, you want me to prove it? And I said, yeah. And he asked us the same question I just asked you. And he said, when something blows up and you think to yourself, first thing, man, I should have done that. That is proof that your brain... When that decision was made, told you, don't do this. But your ego wouldn't listen to your brain. You did it anyway, which is why you say to yourself later, man, I shouldn't have done that. And so what wisdom and age and a whole lot of mistakes and a whole lot of losses have taught me is when making any decision or addressing any issue, sit for a little bit, don't need jerk. Think it through, go through all of the data and fact available to you, and listen to your brain, and don't think that past successes are an indicator of future success. Because just because you've done 10 things well in the past doesn't mean you're not going to do the 11th that breaks you. It's the data, it's the facts, it's the preparation, it's what the answers are are showing you. But when your ego gets so big that you think, nah, I know how to do this, 
and you, your ego usurps your brain, you're going to end up in a place one day where you think, man, I should have done that. And if you can avoid your ego and listen to data, facts, your brain, the people around you, that's how you handle the red flags. But you seem to have an ability to know what's monumental and then what you can push through and live with a tremendous amount of tension in between. I mean, just think, you think about the legal aspects, you think about tensions geopolitically in China, Taiwan, you think about credit, you think about freight, you think about the markets right now. You know, you think about your schedule. You just, you seem to have a capacity to absorb a tremendous amount of lights going off on the dashboard, but still push through it. And then I would assume because of, from a business standpoint, the success, you're also able to decipher the major ones, if that makes sense. And that was just an observation. So I was curious if there was anything there. And there's a lot there. Have a handful of people around you that help you make decisions that you trust. You do not have all the answers and never will. And you need to, you need to welcome dissent. You need to ask for dissent. And you don't need that from 50 people. It's too much. But I've got a CFO. I've got a vice president of purchasing and sales. I've got a wife. I've got an ops manager, and I've got a head of maintenance. And rarely do I address big issues or the thought of big cap expenditures without both individually and corporately all of us sitting together and talking through those things. Now, I don't necessarily listen to everything they say, but I give them everything I'm thinking, and I say, shoot holes in it. And the flip side is they know that even if I hate what they have to say, they're not going to get my consternation. They trust me enough to know that I'm going to listen and consider. But then once I make a decision, regardless of where you were on that decision, as a group, we're going 100 miles an hour that way. Ronald Reagan said one of the greatest things in the world, which is it's amazing what we can accomplish if we don't care who gets the credit. And that is a guiding principle around here with me and and the people that help me make decisions. So they got to trust you and you got to trust them and you got to listen. And then you got to have a closeness and a deep enough respect and trust one another that whatever decision is made after we talk through this, we're not going to go back to the told you so's. We're 100% on board rolling that way. Once all of the information we can possibly gather has been disseminated and decided on. That's one. This is maybe going to sound really weird to you, but the other one is rest. Get some sleep. When you wear yourself down and you burn the candle at both ends of the stick and you ignore it when you're tired, you are going to make mistakes. And it doesn't take many mistakes to create a situation that's really, really hard to come back from. And look, man, I I think to be successful, you only have to work half the day. Doesn't matter if it's the first 12 hours or the second 12 hours. So I'm all about working, okay? But there are times where you just run out of gas. And when you do, pay attention to your body and your brain and let it catch up. Go off somewhere for a day or two and just rest and do things that are relaxing to you and rest and recharge your batteries. If you ignore your body's impulse telling you, I got to have some sleep, that's just more ego getting in the way of what your brain and your body's trying to tell you. And you got to listen to it. So get rest, listen to what your body's telling you and your brain's telling you, and surround yourself with a trusted group of advisors that trust you enough that they will tell you what they really think and be unadultered, straight up, painful honesty, and that you trust well enough that they know that they're trying to make decisions based on what's best for the company or best for your organization. And if you do those two things, you have a pretty good shot at uh, making some good decisions and avoiding big old fat pitfalls. What do you think's in it for them? The CFO, the maintenance manager, the head of purchasing, talent, there's opportunity for talent in this market. All of them have worked other places before in their careers, and all of them have been here probably 15 or more years now. 
And so they have a point of comparison. And as long as the in, income is fair, if you provide a place that they can be heard, that they can exercise their talents, that they're not micromanaged, and that when they make mistakes, they're corrected and held accountable but not berated, that's a pretty good place to go to work. If you can make your living and you're paid market or better and it's a good place to be, folks want to do that, especially when they have a comparative analysis of another place that they didn't have that kind of atmosphere and culture. One of the hardest things for me to do is retain employees straight out of college because they get here and then they work for three or four years and they don't have a comparative analysis of what life looks elsewhere. And it's pretty self-serving to look a 26, seven-year-old kid in the eyes and say, let me tell you something, man, you go do what you want to do and I support whatever you think you want to do, but this is a really good place to work. You better think about what you're doing before you haul ass. You can't say that to a 26, seven-year-old kid that doesn't have any other thing to compare it against. So that is a little difficult sometimes. Um, But folks who've been elsewhere and come here and get ingrained in the culture of the business and buy into the culture of the business, as long as you're paying them market or better and you're creating a culture where they can utilize their skills and talents and be proud of the work they're done, be recognized for the work they're done, and have a safe place to express opinion and ideas and creativity, then, um, you know, you got a pretty good chance of keeping folks in. What's ahead for your business, Class American Hardwoods, and what's ahead for your podcast? Uh, Class American Hardwoods, uh, we have been on a two-year construction zone around here. We've built new buildings. We've installed new machinery. We are installing state-of-the-art, the finest built in the world molders right now. So we will be able to make uh, hardwood moldings. And when I say moldings, crown molding, base, shoe, trim, door mold, window mold, uh, cabinet door moldings uh, that we will sell all over the world. We just were about to install our first high-speed molder, run 200 lineal feet a minute, which is an enormous amount of wood being molded at one time. And by the end of the year, I hope to have three operational. So what's happening is we are vertically integrating, getting closer and closer to the consumer. So it's another big risk because it is very expensive to do. And we've hocked up a lot and spent a lot of money to get it done. But uh, we as a team are pretty convinced that's uh, the next step in the company's evolution to both grow our sales, our margins, and our footprint. The podcast, An Army of Normal Folks, uh, it's only been out six months. Uh, <laughs> we've been a size number 10 in the country on Apple, which is stupid. <laughs> uh, we've had weeks, I don't want to lie here, Alex, we've had weeks where we've had over 200,000 downloads. Correct. Yep. Uh, I think this week we're somewhere around 75, 80,000 downloads. They go up and down, but that is pretty, that's a pretty significant reach. I want to just continue to grow the subscribers and the members of an army of normal folks. I want people to go to normalfolks.us and join so that they listen. And so that you know, an army of normal folks is a nonprofit. Um, I'm not trying to grow this audience to get a bunch of money put in my pocket. In fact, if anything, it's been a net loss for me so far from all the travel and all that I've been covering out of my own pocket. But I believe genuinely deeply believe in the power of normal folks to change our country for the better. And I think that the government and I think the national news media are incented by an enormous amount of power and wealth to continue to craft narratives and say things that divide us. And I'm tired of this division. I'm tired of this misrepresentation. I'm t- Frankly, I'm tired of the lack of understanding of people that don't necessarily look like us, vote like us, worship like us, love like us. I'm also tired of everything we see being negative when there's hundreds of thousands of Americans all over this country doing amazing works to serve people that aren't as fortunate as them. So we're telling those stories, and in telling those stories, we're trying to inspire people to get involved in their little area of the community themselves, and in doing so, create a literal army of normal folks celebrating one another, regardless of who you are, where you come from, how you vote, or how you love. And maybe from that foundation, we can start having these conversations about the stuff that matters, but do it in a civil, respectful, non-threatening way, rather than yelling at each other over social media. So what's next for the 
Army of Normal folks is to continue to get people to join, get people to listen, get people to become premium members and get our information downloaded so they can read about it if they don't have time to listen, get people to be entertained, get people to inspire, and maybe just grow enough people that can actually be a movement that can say to D.C. and the New York national media, shut up. We don't need that anymore. It's always been about we the people. It's always been about normal folks. Revolutions have always been started by normal folks, not the aristocrats, and have a revolution of understanding and appreciation in our country for one another, serving each other. That's the goal. Now, that sounds realistic as hell and lofty, but if you'd have told us six months ago we'd be number 10 on Apple, people would have said, no way. And we are. We're distributed by our heart now. The production is fantastic by Iron Lights in Chicago. Our numbers are growing weekly, and we're reaching a really, really, really broad audience. And so what's next is just keep growing it, and hopefully the effort can exact some measure of change in our culture. Have you always thought big? Or was there a specific time in your life where you allowed yourself to think real big? Man, I I don't even know if I think big now, to be honest with you. Listen, I think amazing things happen when a person's passion and discipline, and by discipline, I don't mean doing things right. I mean tools, ability, discipline, whatever your discipline, a doctor is, has a discipline. I think amazing things happen when a person's passion and di- discipline collide with opportunity. And so I don't know that I've always thought big. I've just always thought about what am I passionate about? What am I good with it? And making sure to run headfirst into opportunities where those where that passion and discipline had an opportunity to interact. I've done a lot of things that people don't know about that I would consider vastly successful that aren't necessarily, quote, big. And I trust me, when the people showed up to film a movie that we thought nobody would ever see, and I ended up winning an Academy Award, we never thought that would be big. When I started a podcast, you know, the greatest thing about podcasts is there's really no barrier to entry. The worst thing about podcasts is there's really no barrier to entry. <laughs> so when there's four and a half million podcasts out there, how in the hell do you know to go to an army of normal folks and get top 10 on Apple? I didn't know if it'd be big or expected to be big. I was just passionate about it. I have this particular discipline, and there was an opportunity, and it collided, and things happened. So I think big is relative. And I I would maybe restate it, have always looked for places to go successfully, and that's yes. But I would not be a successful doctor. I would not be a successful astronomer. I would not be a successful musician because I don't have the discipline or passion for those things. I just look at my discipline, I look at my passion, and I try to collide it headfirst into opportunity. And typically, if you do that and do it the right way, you can find success. And if it goes big, it goes big. Man, this has been badass. And Duncan, to your point earlier in the beginning, he's also, he's the best. He's a great guy. He's a great guy, and so are these other families. And, and we need to think about it and appreciate them and think about all they mean for our community and celebrate them. Thank you. You're welcome. Good to be with you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Driven By Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review. Please subscribe to the show and you can follow me on social, on Twitter and Instagram to join me for future episodes of the Driven By Podcast. Hope you have a great week and see you next time.